Major League Baseball presents Big League Tips. Here's how to figure an earned run average. First of all, take the total number of earned runs that you've allowed, say 20. You divide that by the number of innings that you've pitched, let's say 80. Now that'll give you a figure, 80 into 20, of .250. Now you take .250, multiply that by 9 to give you a number of runs per 9 innings. Uh, this would be 2.25. In the ERA of that, you'd be pitching awfully well. Baseball fever. This is the place where major is made. Where every moment balances on the ledge of immortality. But only one team takes the crown. Choose your champion. And welcome to the postseason. Where new generation rises Let it fly. with their own set of rules, where cities stick together. Many voices become one. In a moment, any moment can become major. This is the postseason. Just a bad writer. No, take this lip balm, this copy of uh, Tongue and Cheeks, and these batteries for my watch. Tongue and what? Copy of Tongue and Cheeks. Oh, porno. Lip service, um, rear-ended nuts and bolts. Uh. Why do we keep tongue and cheeks? What? Tongue and cheeks. This guy wants porno. It's okay. Just give me whatever. Check under the counter. That's where we keep all the really weird shit. Jim? Jim Scott? Hey. Hey, Heather. Hi. I haven't seen you since prom. Here's That's your tongue and cheeks. Oh, it's, it's for a friend. I, I don't read those. I do. I read the hell out of them. When I'm done, it looks like it's going through a paper shredder. This month, you get a free copy of Pink Slips with your tongue and cheeks. It's a bit more upscale. That's a, that's a bonus. And this pocket <laughs> Nice. Or a 12-inch free. Just, just the magazine. Careful with that. Just, just the magazine. Please. Just put the magazines in the back. You need a safe word, and there shouldn't be more. In the, just the mags in the back. Get the three pack. I want you to save money. Last two pages are recipes. A lot of people don't even get that far. Have fun. Hey, if you're not going to take that free, you think I can have it? You never have enough. It's all yours, bro. Nobody move. It's not mine, it's for a friend. Is that right? We're live downtown, where local porno buyer Jim Scott has been taken hostage, along with his pornography. You mean national TV? Reactions from Jim's mother after the break. He's scary, huh? Hit this guy with a pitch and he'll steal home. Heckle him in the outfield, and you better watch your nachos the next time he's at the plate. He's old school. He's like Hack Wilson with a Twitter account. 
This is a number one pick and a rookie of the year, and the only time he ever cracks a smile is when he gets a new supply of eye black. He's Bryce Harper. He's a beast, and he's about to take it. Introducing Jimmy Fox, home on slugger. Jimmy, would you say a few words about it? It's a common saying in baseball that every batter loves his base hits, and I'm no exception. I love to take my cuts, but I hate to take that third strike, because when you do, it sure is a long walk back to the bench. Shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K Pop, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, Seamans? What's good? Welcome back to the Dojo Freaks for yet another. Weekly edition of the Baseball Pod, Spanning the Globe, Backwards K-Pod, where I like to take these deep, introspective dives into the players' moments, pop culture, and stadiums throughout the history of baseball that have been woven into the fabric and DNA of America. In a little over a year and a half, with literally over a hundred shows in my vault of archives now, we have... Together, you and I, the audience, we've covered about 150 years of the amazing pastime from Moses Fleetwood Walker all the way up to the amazing Shohei Otani. 
and the mission of this show and my personal mission until I draw my last breath and come running out of that cornfield with my stirrups up and 22-year-old knees again. My mission is to preach the gospel of baseball around the world with our audio Wikipedia of the baseball stories that have been passed down through the generations. Hello, everybody. I'm Jake Robinson. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to me pontificate the seams. And before we get this time travel diesel loaded up for some time-bending travel to our destination in time this week, I would be remiss if I didn't hit on these playoff series winding down the 2023 season. And I know I'm a little late this week, but I figured I wanted to watch the uh, the snakes and the Phils go out of here in Game 7 while I was doing the show. So that's why we're a little bit late this week. Uh, it's now the... Well, it's the bottom of the fourth. And Bryson stopped with a base hit on the outfield. And that's going to score Alec Baum. And the Phillies take a 2-1 to one lead in the bottom of the fourth. They got man on first and third with one out. So we're going to have that playing in the background while I kick this show off to you. But look, the Texas Rangers, they are the very last team standing in the American League as they limped off their home field of Globe Life Park after Game 5, needing to win both games at the Houston Juice, Juice Box against the in-state big brother rival that has bullied them throughout the years. Texas was able to win both of those games before a hostile crowd, and they have officially moved on to the World Series for the first time since 2011, and they are awaiting the winner of this game right now that I'm watching. Arizona filthy NLC matchup. And I got it on right now as I record this show. And honestly, folks, I did not believe Texas had it in them at the beginning of the year. My friend Dennis and I, we've been arguing about them since December. And Dennis, to his credit, a huge filthy band, by the way, said Texas was going to the World Series around Christmas time. I wasn't convinced. I'm not one of these guys that, that comes on the air and hits you over the head with my all-knowing righteousness. Uh, sometimes I get it wrong, and I definitely missed the boat on Texas this year. Now, with that being said, two things I missed out on. Number one, I undervalued Bruce Bochy's presence in the dugout as the manager. And Texas played my Orioles in the ALDS, and he clearly outmanaged those manager. Brandon Hyde, who was making his first playoff appearance as a manager. And he also outmanaged Dusty Baker in the ALCS. The second thing, and probably the biggest move, which no one could have predicted this at the beginning of the year. And that was the trade for left-handed pitcher Jordan Montgomery at the deadline with the cards. And I'll be honest, without Gumby, I don't think the Rangers get there. But... Pairing him up with Abaldi as their 1-2 lefty-righty starters at the top of the rotation. It gave them much-needed depth on that stab, and it took a lot of pressure off of a suspect bullet. In fact, thanks to Bochy, who has now led three teams, the Padres, the Giants, and the Rangers to the World Series, his handling of the bully, the, the team has been able to navigate stormy waters. The Rangers came into the post with a 4.77 bullpen ERA, by far the worst in the playoffs. 
And the Rangers have been attacking early, and they've been scoring in bunches. And any time the Rangers jump out to a big lead, Bochy has the advantage, and the Texas Rangers have the advantage. As long as, you know, Texas starters, uh, you know, keep the offense in the game. Bochy may not have much confidence in some of those bully arms, but he has it in spades with Josh Spores, Arnaldus Chapman, and Jose LeClerc on that back end. And thankfully for Texas fans, the Rangers are playing the best baseball right now that they have played all year. And the truth is, Dennis, the Phillies fan, he may be right more than he would like to know because the Rangers right now can beat anyone in baseball. And that includes the two teams duking it out right now for the NL crown. One of those teams being your Phillies. The Rangers are the truth. And I'm here to admit it. And both of those NL teams are in for a fight no matter who wins this this series. So, I see the catcher is throwing down. The infield is chattering it up. Throwing that seed around the infield with some swagger. The umpire has called play ball. So, at this time, I'd like to get you seam heads to kiss and hug your loved ones goodbye here at Terrapin Station. Load up our BKP time travel choo-choo. And I'm calling all aboard. As this week, I will bend baseball space and time, hit these dimensional wormholes to get us to October 28, 1907, Southernsville, Maryland, where the beast, Double X, the great Jimmy Fox, will write his legacy from humble farm boy beginnings to becoming one of the most prolific but often overshadowed baseball talents to ever grace the diamond. And if I'm being honest with you, Preeks, everything I've ever known about Jimmy Fox has been on the surface. The gaudy power numbers, the old grainy photographs with guys like Babe Ruth and Connie Mack, those badass Philadelphia athletic uniforms he wore, the muscular physique. But other than that, I knew very little about the man and his journey. And that is one of the things that I love about doing this show. I love pushing myself to learn new things, and I love sharing it with you. And there is so, so there is something so fascinating to me about stars who lived in the shadows of other greats in their era. For example, guys like Joe Cronin, Napoleon Lajaway, Hank Greenberg, and of course... Jimmy Fox. Amazing, iconic ball players. We know because of their stats and old photographs, but they are usually just blurs behind the giants of baseball history. And Jimmy Fox is often overshadowed by two of the greatest baseball gods in his day, as well as the history of the game, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. We all know Double X could hit the piss out of a ball simply by the numbers that he put up, but as the seasons of his excellence and greatness disintegrate into the sands of time, I feel it is my duty as your fearless leader to gather up his story and tuck it away in our audio collection for posterity. Now, the first thing that captured my attention about Fox right from the jump was the boys called him the Beast. 
And as far as I can tell, he is the first man in American sports history to be called the Beast. And I could be wrong in that assertion about his moniker. If I'm wrong, please feel free to email me at backwardsk5 at gmail.com. But from my research, he is the very first American athlete to be dubbed so. The Beast. And I find that fascinating. I mean, think about it. I remember since, you know, the early 90s, this term beast began getting thrown around left and right. This guy's a beast, that guy's a beast, right? You probably had a few of those guys on your team back in the day when you yourself was on a sale out somewhere. I personally had a quite few beast-ass teammates that back in the day I used to play with. I mean, Shaq, you kidding me? That guy was a fucking beast. Ray Lewis? Oh yeah, for sure. He's a goddamn beast. Barry Bonds, Yaramir, Yager, Brock Lesnar. Uh, beast, beast, and beast incarnate. We throw this team of sports entertainment uh, endearment around today to anyone who put up a five-year stretch of stellar play, it seems like. But the very first beast in American team sports ever was Jimmy Fox. And in his waiting years of his mortal cord, Jimmy, more than anything, enjoyed the company of his younger brother, Sam, who was his biggest fan. They both lived in Miami, Florida, close to each other, and they would often reminisce together about Jimmy's baseball career. His second wife, Georgia, had passed away in 1966, and his little bro could sense that his elder sibling was uh, lonely, depressed, struggling with the loss. And eventually, with little bro Sam propping up his big bro through loyalty and love, there were flashes of the old double X that he grew up idolizing. His big bro, one of the all-time greatest baseball players, renowned for his generosity and his good-natured disposition. On July 21st, 1967, the two brothers were enjoying a meal together when Jimmy inexplicably collapsed with what looked like his third heart attack in three years, and he was rushed to Miami Baptist Hospital, where attempts to resuscitate the baseball legend failed. And at the age of 59, the baseball grade passed on to the cornfield in Iowa. An autopsy later revealed that Fox had choked to death. It wasn't a heart attack, but he choked to death in a fashion that was eerily similar to that of his wife a few months earlier. Literally broken hearted, his brother Sam would die just a few months later. But the sad end to Fox's life should not diminish his memory, as his legend has all the elements of a classic American dream that ends in tragedy. His legend arises from the ashes of a small Maryland farm boy to reaching the pinnacle of fame and reverence, to the fall of a shining star plummeting back to earth. And through it all, he was able to retain his personality and appeal that drew praise from teammates and foes alike long after his playing career had ended. And I'm just looking at the game here. Uh, It's 2-1, to top of the 5th. And what happened on this play right here? Uh, when foul, Ramirez picked it up. Okay, two to one, top of the fifth. 
Game 7 of the 2023 NLCS between the Phillies and the Snakes. And here we are, freaks, coming out of our interdimensional wormhole, straight to our time and destination to Southernsville, Maryland, which is a small rural town located on the eastern shore of Maryland. On October 22nd, 1907, where tenant farmers Dell and Maddie Fox had given birth to their first child, James Emery Fox, who will go down to be one of the most prodigious sluggers in baseball history. His father, Dell Fox, had played standout ball when he was younger, and he passed his love and knowledge of the game down to his son. Now, Jimmy did very well in school, but it was athletics where the muscular farm boy excelled. He played soccer, he ran track, he played baseball for Southernsville High School, and he set the state track record in both the 220 and 80 yard dash in 1923. He was such a dominant prep star that the University of Maryland arranged for him a full scholarship his junior year in high school. And that was his for the taking upon graduation from Sellersville High School. However, that same year, 1924, junior year in high school, he was signed by a Class D baseball team close to his home in Easton, Maryland, with a team fittingly called the Easton Farmers. And one second sidebar here, folks. Corbin, Corbin, uh, Looked like Corbin has just tied the game up with a single. It's now 2-2 two to two in the top of the fifth. And it looks like they're going to send the pitching coach out to talk to Ranger Suarez out there. So, tight game here. 2-2 two, two in the fifth. Man on first, one out for the Snakes. Okay. So, he's a dominant star. The University of Maryland, they arranged this uh, full scholarship for him to take advantage of. And that's pretty much, you know, his if he wants it when he graduates from Southern High School. But that same year, 1924, he's signed by a Class D baseball team. And it's in Eastern Maryland, which isn't far from where he lives, with a team fittingly called the Eastern, Eastern Farmers. The Farmers were a loose affiliate of Connie Mack and his Philadelphia A's ball club, and they were managed by all-time A's great and Hall of Famer Frank Home Run Baker. So Connie Mack signed the teenager farm boy for $100 a month under the condition that Fox never again compete in any other sport competitively. And Mack saw the strapping kid... And he saw a lad, a lad with a lot of upside from day one of scouting him. And he didn't want any injuries from any of the other sports destroying the vision that he had for double X. So, $100 in 1924, extrapolated to today's economy, is about $1,800 a month from that initial contract written up by Mr. Mack. Now, when Fox reports to the Easton Ball Club in 1924... He actually has designs on either pitching or playing third base. However, the A's are shallow at the catcher's position, so Baker sticks him behind the dish 
which was fine to box. He, he had done the tools of ignorance in high school, as well as in some summer all-star team tournaments. So he was fine with that, as long as he got to play. And almost overnight, Double X was a must-see spectacle. And the powerhouse New York Yankees were paying close attention to his exploits with expectations to sign him. So in July of 1924, Connie Mack is reading the tea leaves and he purchases Fox contract from the farmers for $2,000 or about $35K today. Fox would finish the season with the Farmers in 1924 before meeting up with the big club in July. That first season, he proved to Connie Mack that he had the ability to sit on the bench and watch a good game like everyone else at the park as he got zero playing time after his promotion. And let's not forget here, folks, this is all happening his junior year of high school. He's 16, 17 years old right here. He would, in fact, he's going to drop out his senior year of high school in 1925. And he joins the A's spring training uh, team in Port Myers, Florida. While he never received his diploma, he did receive a certificate designating him as an honorary member of the class. According to family legend, Fox once ran away from home at the age of 10 and tried to enlist in the U.S. Army after hearing accounts of his grandfather's heroics in the Civil War. He stood around 5'11 in 1925, but his work on the farm had produced a physique that belied his average height. He had deceptive foot speed. Once he got his momentum up, he was basically running downhill. And it looks like Corbin Carroll's going to score. And the snakes go up 3-2. to two. Bad running bl- blunder there at first base. They do get the third out. But the snakes going into the bottom of the fifth now hold a 3-2 to two lead over the Phillies. Game 7. So, yeah, he did a lot of work on the farm. His body was, you know, he, he was, I mean, he was a tank. Like, uh, you know, think uh, Hannes Wagner. I mean, like, you know, uh, a fire hydrant with legs. That's what, that's, that's what that dude was. On the Davis trial for the farmers, Home Run Baker became an instant fan of the kid who showed up in a pair of overalls and leather boots. After the 1925 spring training invite, The Beast earns a spot on the squad, albeit as a pinch hitter and a backup catcher. On May 1st, 1925, in his Major League debut, he hits a sharp single off of Washington Senators pitcher Vern Gregg for his first big league hit. Again, he's barely 17-year-old, freaks. And Connie Mack is a firm believer in Double X's talent, and he can't bear to watch Jimmy sit on the bench instead of getting seasoning and at-bats. So, he sends his teenage prodigy to Providence, Rhode Island, and the Easter League. And despite missing some time there uh, while nursing a sore shoulder, the beast rips league pitching apart. He's hitting 317. He returned to Filthy in September call-up, and even with that bum shoulder and with sporadic playing time, he bats 667 in his first 10 Major League Baseball games. 
1926, just two years removed from being a junior in high school, Box was finally able to stick with the talented athletics team. Unfortunately, Jimmy is second fiddle to a young starting catcher at Mickey Cochran, who are going to have a Hall of Fame career behind the dish. So this relegated the young phenom to pinch hitting, as well as some spot duty in the outfield that year. By the time the calendar flips to 1927, Connie Mack is in the young formidable stages of building a powerhouse dynasty for the era. The Ruth Garrett Yankees are the undisputed kings of baseball, but the young and hungry A's are nipping at their heels, but still finishing a distant second in the American League race with the pennant. But the baseball savant-like brain of Connie Mack is stacking talent. Not only do they have youngsters Fox, Al Simmons, Lefty Grove on the mind, he goes out and he acquires Tiger legend Ty Cobb in 1927 and Tris Speaker in 1928 to provide a wealth of experience and guidance to the young core. Now, in 1927, he's still riding the bench. He does hit 323 in a limited capacity. However, some clouds are beginning to clear up in his baseball career as he had earned the trust of manager Mack. And Connie began to tinker with the A's lineup to find a spot for double X. Eventually, Connie pencils him in at first base where he would play the bulk of his career. And by all accounts, he was an underrated defender with an explosive first step for better than average range. He also caught occasionally, and sometimes he manned the hot corner, a position he played in several All-Star games because of the presence of Lou Gehrig in the league. By 1928, the A's are the perfect blend of impactful, knowledgeable vets, as well as a dearth of fully seasoned young youngins. And they would give the empirical Yankees everything they could handle before falling short in the AL pennant race to the Browns' bottoms. Fox is not only a full-time player, but he is a major cog in Connie Mack's baseball machine. He shoots out of the 1928 opening day gate, and by June, he is raking to the tune of a 407 batting average. Now, of course, he cools off after that, but he finishes the season batting 328. He is now a real deal weapon in Connie's arsenal. And the A's are chomping at the bit during the winter offseason as the future is bright for the Philly ALT. That is beginning to challenge the Phils for the team of choice in the city they share. As well as their quest to finally vanquish the seemingly indestructible Yankees dynasty. In the offseason, coming off his year of success and future optimism, he returns home and buys his parents a brand new farm just outside of Southernsville, and he elopes with his girlfriend, Helen Height, with whom he would have two sons in a 14-year stormy marriage. By 1929, the Philadelphia A's are in full bloom. As in retrospect, we know that they will become one of the legendary juggernauts in baseball history. And I covered these seasons in full detail 
and my Sean Park show. I'm going to keep it contained to mostly just Jimmy Fox this week, but that show is worth listening to, not only because of the history of one of the team's greatest palaces ever, but also it is an in-depth study into Philly baseball uh, when it, back when it was a two-team city. And the A's, late 20s, early 30s, Ah, there's some of the best uh, MLB teams in integrated, uh, segregated history, without question, no doubt. So, you can find that Shy Park biopic anywhere you're listening to me now, or go to diamondsnakejake.poppy.com to find Shy Park and any of the other bangers in my vault of archives. And with Fox now entrenched at first base, he had the first of many incredible seasons uh, in August. His 390 average leads the American League, and he is neck and neck with Ruth and Garrick for the league lead in home runs. A September swoon would cost him the batting title, but he still batted 354 with 33 dongs and a 463 OBP to lead the league. Finally, the Athletics beat out the Yankees for the AL pennant, and Double X was the driving force that propelled Filthy into a World Series showdown with the Northside Cubs out of Chi-Town. Upon getting to the dance, Fox's first child, Jimmy Jr., was born. And he told the press he would honor Jr.'s arrival with a home run blast. And he would keep that promise to his namesake with a blast in Game 1 that would be the first run scored of the 1929 World Series. He also goes deep in Game 2. He had a huge single in the incredible 10-run rally that won Game 4. And the A's completely overwhelmed the Cubs for the world title in five games. That championship winning season brought massive attention to the team and to the beast in particular. Upon his trip home after winning the World Series, the pride of Southernsville was vetted as royalty in a hometown celebration. The 1930 campaign in defense of their crown was really a lot of the same old, same old for the A's and Double X. The team did find themselves in a kind of dogfight with the Senators for the AL pennant, but they would outlast Washington and repeat as American League champions. And once again, the Beast comes out the gate white hot. By the end of June, he has 22 dogs. In July, he's not only flexing his muscle, He's got a 19-game hitting streak to boot, hitting 446 for the month. He finishes off the season with a 335 average and 37 home runs. And he was one of four players on the A's to have an OBP over 420. The other three players being Mickey Cochran, Max Bishop, and Al Simmons. And the 1930 World Series pitted Philly versus the Cards of St. Louis. Branch Ricky's Cardinals. While, you know, the series here is knotted at two games apiece. Game 5 is underway at the Cardinals' venerable Sportsman Park. Going into the top of the ninth, the pivotal game was deadlocked in a 0-0 tie. Your typical World Series game where every pitch becomes more important than the last. You know, the type of game where... It almost feels like you're reading a book. With every new pitch, you lick your finger and turn the page. You know what I'm saying? As the team came off the field in the bottom of the eighth, the Beast promised all of his teammates with an earshot that this thing is over, saying, quote, I'm going to bust this game up right now, boys. 
And he then proceeded to drop dong on Burley Grimes' lips with a shot into the left center field bleachers. The dinger gave the O's, uh, the A's the victory, and it took the scales of momentum their way, and they would proceed to choke out the cards in six. The baseball press throughout American cities took a liking to Fox, and they began, uh, they began to dub him with various nicknames at the time. Double X, and of course the Beast, as well as the Maryland Strong Boy. He was branded as this country boy who was unaffected by the bright lights of the big city. Nonetheless, as the stars shined brighter and brighter, Double X developed quite a taste for the finer things in life. He was known to spend outlandish money on well-tailored suits and the best clothes that money could buy, a passion shared by his wife, who loved living in a life of opulence. He had a fondness for grooming what we would call, you know, metrosexual today. He had a private manicurist who he frequently called on. His clothes were carefully ensembled together with cufflinks that matched his socks. As his salary grew, so too did his generosity as well as the insatiable appetite for this lifestyle. And he was known in bellhop circles throughout the major league cities across the country as the best tipper in baseball. He rewarded bad boys with ha- handsome tips. He always insisted on picking up the tab after a night out with the boys. And after winning back-to-back chips, the A's had even more statistically dominant 1932 season than they had in 1930 and 1931. They cruised to the pennant with an 107-win season. The Yankees and their stupefying lineup that averaged almost seven runs a game in 1932 weren't even a challenge to the balanced A's attack under the stewardship of Connie Mack. And despite painful foot and knee injuries, Fox battled throughout the seasons. He still finished with 30 home runs, 120 runs batted in. For the third time in a row, Jimmy Fox and those fighting A's are Back in the show, this time to face each other yet again. And this is going into the Gas House Gang years. Another team I gave the biopic pod on. Go check it out if you ain't hurt. So, for the third year in a row, Philly is in the World Series. But this time, the Cardinals pull up the upset, mainly because of St. Louis outfielder Pepper Martin seizing the moment and the chip. Fox had a great series in the loss. He batted 348. He hit a home run. That went completely out of Shad Park. And three career World Series appearances. The Beast batted 344 with four home runs. However, that 1931 World Series would be the last for Jimmy Fox and the second dynasty of the Philadelphia Athletics. The A's came up short in their pennant winning aspirations in 1934, but Fox was in the eye of the hurricane for much of the year as the baseball universe became enthralled by his epic run at the Babe Ruth single-season home run record of 60 set by the Bambino just six years prior. The first week of May, the Beast had 19 dongs on his season resume. By the end of July, he's belted 41 home runs, and he's a whole month ahead of Ruth's pace. In August, Fox injured his thumb and wrist in a household accident. 
And although he played through the injury, it did adversely have a negative impact on his power production. Going into the last week of the 1934 campaign, the Beast had 56 home runs. Try as he might, including two home runs in his final two games, he would come up just shy of the babe with 58 home runs. The final stats? Incredible. 58 home runs, 169 RBI, both AL best, and he narrowly misses out on the Triple Crown with his second place 364 BA. When the dust from the campaign had settled, Fox was voted the American League Most Valuable Player. And one thing about Connie Mack, he was almost always the smartest baseball guy in any room he ever sat in, and he knew it. And I explained this in the Chai Park Show. Connie Mack didn't cave to ballplayers in their contract demands. He had already built two separate A's dynasties in the early 1900s, and he was always convinced he was smart enough to burn it to the ground and build it all over. So during the 1934 season, Connie Mack begins to tear down what he had meticulously built and he starts selling all parts from the championship machine. This time around, though, the ball club was in fire, dire financial straits as the Great Depression begins to set in, affecting everything in its path, including baseball. The attendance was down. And this situation left Mac in a pre- precarious spot where he's in desperate need of cash and he's forced to sell off pretty much the only thing that he owns a value, and that's the superstars on his baseball team. Al Simmons was the first to go, followed by Lefty Grove, Mickey Cochran, and that opened the floodgates, and the fire sale was on. The only player of value left standing from the dynastic ace team was Jimmy Fox, who stayed for three years through the purge, and still put up three fantastic years of numbers. In 1933, the A's had enough in their tank to finish as a competitive third-place team, due in large part to the Beast and a second consecutive AL MVP. Despite various leg issues in 34, Fox hit 48 dingers with a 365 average, 163 RBI, and earning the triple crown that had just barely eluded his clutches the year before. That year... He was elected to play first base in the first ever Midsummer Classic. He hit for the cycle against the Tribe on August 14th. Jimmy did put the screws to A's management and demand a pay raise from Connie Mack for what's essentially, you know, ostensibly is his last fan draw. Now, you don't want me to roll out of town, right? So, for one of the few times in his baseball life, Mr. Mack does in fact cave, and he gives the Beast a salary of $18,000 a year. $18,000 in 1934 has the purchasing power of a little less than a half a million dollars today in 2023. The team continues to spiral in 1934, but even still, Fox continues putting up prodigious production and for the third straight year, he hits over 40 home runs, and he even steals a career-high 11 bags. But the most significant event in Fox's 1934 year came after the season in an exhibition game in Winnipeg, Manitoba. 
a pitch thrown by Barty Brown, struck double X on his forehead, and the star slugger was out cold for a hot minute. He would spend the next four days in a Canadian hospital. Now, despite the setback, Box was allowed to accompany Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and other major leaguers like Mo Berg on a historic barnstorming tour of Japan in November. <laughs> Yet another moment I've covered here at BKP in the mysterious Mo Berg podcast biopic as we later found out that Berg was running around Tokyo performing espionage as an, espionage as an American spy for the government supplying the Defense Department with detailed plans and videos about where J- Japan's battleships were anchored in the Tokyo Bay as well as you know the infrastructure locations of the city. Just another amazing story in my vault of archives, freaks. Mysterious Mo Berg. What a story. Okay, so where was I? To neutralize the loss of Cochrane, Fox was returned to his original position behind the plate to start in the 1935 season. He had a big arm, and by most accounts, by players and teammates, he called a great game and he handled the staff well. Because of the injuries to other players during the season, the B saw action at third and first as well that year. But the team plummeted like a stone to the very bottom of the American League standings. But not without yet another beast year out of Fox, who tied Tiger Slugger Hank Greenberg for the league league with 36 bombs and a batting average that was only three points behind the batting king that year, Buddy Meyer of the Washington Senators. Upon completion of the 1935 season, the long-rumored trade of Fox to the Red Sox finally goes down. Boston owner Tom Yawkey had already purchased former teammates Grove from Filthy and player manager Joe Cronin from Washington in recent years. So Yawkey sends Connie Mack $150,000 for the right to Fox. Pitcher Johnny Markham and two minor league players in Gordon Rhodes and George Salvino. And Fox felt bittersweet in the end. He loved playing at Philly. He had a real connection to the city and their fans from the golden years of the club. But Yawkey seemed committed to competing, and it would be fun to play ball with the fellas again. Plus, the fact that Mr. Yawkey had been pursuing him for over two years gave him and gave him a $7,000 raise. It helped to soften the blow of leaving his city of brotherly love. So, let's see here. Mr. Yawkey paid 150 k to get these four guys, with Fox being the centerpiece. So, $150,000 in 1936 is equivalent to over $3.3 million today in 2023. He got himself a $7,000 raise by Yawkey and the Sox, and that is about $150,000 raise by today's standards. So, I tell you what, Reese, I, I like where we're at in this biopic look at the great Jimmy Fox. I consider this the first act of his story, the glory and the collapse of the Philadelphia A's, with the consistent Fox putting up mind-numbing stats through it all. And when I return, we're going to go through acts two and three of his life, beginning with the new baseball chapters with the Boston Red Sox. Don't go anywhere. More on the beast. Jimmy Fox when I return. 
Please support the grassroots sponsors who support your grassroots pods. Laparose hair cleaners. No more smelly hands. BRB freaks. See you on the other side, C-Meds. Or call 713 713- 
588-0290. For the buy one, get one deal, use promo code SUMMER23. Fishing along the bank of your favorite river and listening to DKP sounds like a great idea. In fact, hey up. where are my poles at? I'm John Fishing. If he didn't exist, Jim Leland would have called in a favor to the baseball gods and had him created. World Series winner? Check. AL MVP? Sure. Triple crown? Wait. Is that even an award anymore? It is. He won it, and now he's in a club that hasn't had a new member in 45 years. Oh? Oh, Miguel. Miguel. He's Miguel Cabrera, one of the best pure hitters in baseball, and he's about to take Stadium in Cleveland, and here we are among the aces of the American League who battle the all-star delegation of the national circuit while baseball charity reaps a $60,000 benefit and the hot stove leaguers lay in a winter supply of fuel. Rival managers Mickey Cochran, American League pilot, and Frankie Frisch, head man of the world champion Cardinals. Lou Gehrig, Joe Cronin, Jimmy Fox, and Al Simmons, the big siege guns of the American. That batting lineup combines a manager's dream and a pitcher's headache. Part of the heavy artillery in the National League, Mel Ott, Pepper Martin, and Memphis Bill Terry. And a major attraction, of course, is Mrs. Dean's bashful boy, Dizzy. The gate of 70,000 fans represents the third largest crowd in baseball history. And now with the National League at bat, they're ready to play ball. Lefty Gomez on the mound, Pepper Martin, leadoff man, and a single to left puts the Cardinal star on first. But Gomez has everything under control, and the inning ends with Martin holding a bag. The crowd gets his big thrill in the last half of the first when Jimmy Fox, the great third sacker of the athletics, steps to the plate with Walker on the mound. Gehrig is on first. The count is two and three. Walker burns one over. Fox meets it on the enemy bat and slams it for a homer in the left field stand. Gehrig travels around the bases ahead of the hero, and the American All-Stars get off to a two-run lead. This is the biggest ball yard in either league, and the drive that clears the outfield here looks like a record long-distance flight. segment of this week's show giving you the first X skinny on double X, the pride of Southernsville, Maryland, the incomparable Jimmy Box. And look, folks, I know this show's a little late this week. It's been that way. I did it on purpose that way, so I can watch game seven with you freaks. And right now the snakes are threatening you got Perdomo on second. Marte, I'm sorry, Marte on second, Perdomo on third, one out, and Alvarado is now on the mound, pitching for the Phillies, and who's this, I think this is, this is Corbin Carroll of the man, he's already got an RBI, so we're all in anticipation, game seven, and look, here's a funny little stat, so, the Arizona Diamondbacks, who, you know, they didn't become a team until the 90s, 
They are now 3-1 and one in Game 7s. The Philadelphia Phillies, the longest team to be in one city since 1883, they've been to zero Game 7s. So, you know, baseball is just one of those crazy fucking things, man. But let's get back to the beast here. The incomparable Jimmy Fox. Uh, I hit on his humble beginnings as a child growing up on a small farm on the Maryland Eastern Shore in a town called Sellersville. And though he stood at around 5'11", his years of putting in work on the farm had given the boy one of the best physiques of the game. Teammate Hall of Fame pitcher Lefty Gomez once quipped, even his hair has muscles. As a teenager, he was a fine student and an exceptional athlete, starring in soccer, track and field, baseball. Corbin flies out to right field, and that's going to score for Delmo. The Snakes take a 42 lead here in the seventh. And he's such a great athlete at Southernville High that the University of Maryland offers him a full scholarship upon graduation. And while the offer was tempting, the Philadelphia A's and Connie Mack get wind of the high school phenom, and they sign him to a major uh, minor league contract with the nearby Eastern Farmers Ball Club. And from day one, the teenager is identified as a raw talent with tremendous upside, not only by the athletics organization of the time, but the empirical Yankees of the day have somehow found out about this prodigy, and they are in pursuit of the youngster as well. Connie Mack signs the high school junior to a major league contract, and Double X quits high school and becomes a Bonafide Major League Baseball player. The first three years, he's used sparingly off the bench. He excels as a pinch hitter. He's penciled in at various positions during those three years, while Connie Mack begins to draw plans for a second dynasty of championship A's teams. Jimmy plays a catcher, first base, third base, and the outfield corner positions during his time. By 1929, Connie Mack has built himself an impressive ball club that is finally capable of unseating the Yankees from their iron throne. And the Yankees have dominated the 20s with their two irrepressible baseball deities of Gehrig and Ruth. They go to three World Series in a row with Connie Max Vision and the Beast competitive zeal and prodigious power. The A's win the chip in 1929 and 1930 over the Cubs and Cards respectively, but in 1931 they would lose to Branch Rickey in the St. Louis uh, Ball Club in the World Series rematch. The World Series would mark the last series the Beast would play in, and it also symbolized the beginning of a slow death for the Philadelphia A's as the Great Depression wreaked havoc on the game receipts for Shy Park, and the city of Filthy is coming to grips with the fact that the city cannot uh, house two baseball teams anymore. And the Phillies were slowly but surely becoming the city's team of choice. It was a painful 23-year death that reached its conclusion in 1954 when the club moves to Kansas City. Max sells off his stars, unwilling and unable to meet his superstar's contract demands, but he keeps Fox around for another four years. The team continued to sink deeper and deeper in the standings. 
but Jimmy Fox and his baseball exploits are still a major draw in the Philly market. He is a fan favorite, and for the last two years in Philly, Red Sox owner Tom Yawkey is trying everything in his power to get him to Boston and play for the Fenway Faithful. After the completion of the 1935 season, Yawkey finally talks Connie Mack into dealing him to Beantown. He is still only 28 years old going into the 1936 season during his 11-year athletics career. Well, really, eight, if you consider the first three years of his his career, were spent riding the pine as he only played in 97 games combined those first three seasons. But in those years, the 11 years, the, the always overshadowed beast put up prolific numbers as an athletic. He played in 1,256 games for Filthy. 5,242 plate appearances, 1,492 hits, 257 doubles, 79 triples, 302 home runs, which was rarefied air back then, 1,075 RBI, and listen to the slash line, folks, 339, 440, 640, a 1.07 OPS plus, and a 175 OPS, I'm sorry, a 1.075 OPS, and a 175 OPS plus, 2,813 total bases. But now, for the first time in his 11-year career, he finds himself in a new city with new teammates and a new club, high ambitions, expectations. The highlights of his first season with the Sox came on June 16th when he hit a ball completely out of Comiskey Park. An amazing feat, as I did a show that's in the archives about the expense of Comiskey Park. A stadium, do you realize this, that never saw any player in its 80-year history, near 80-year history, hit 100 home runs in that joint. Not one player ever hit 100 home runs in Comiskey Park. Uh, Jimmy Fox hit it out of Comiskey Park. This was one of the 41 dogs he dropped that year, but for the first time in his career, he was not a league leader in any of the power production categories. The Beast was one of the few bright spots in a disappointing 1936 Red Sox team. In 1937, sinus problems that first flared up after the beating he took in Manitoba a few years prior affected his production dramatically. Fox went through home home run-less streaks of 16 and 24 games that year, and he hit a mere 285, the lowest average he had raked out in his career up to that point. He did hit a ball at Fenway that year that went completely out of the stadium in right center field. Just right of the center field flagpole against the Yankees on August 12th, all over baseball, the talking heads began whispering that Jimmy Fox, at the age of 29, was washed. But in 1938, the beast shuts that noise down with one of the greatest seasons And it all starts at spring training when he drops five dogs in the last week of exhibition games as an omen for things to come. In May, he hits 10 home runs, drives in 35. On June 16th, he walks six times in a game to tie a Major League Baseball record. The Yankees would eventually eclipse Boston in the standings, but it was a better fucking year for the Beast. His 50 home runs came in second to Hank Greenberg, who was challenging the Ruth threshold himself. And finished with 59. Other than that, 
Fox won two-thirds of the Triple Crown with his 3.49 average, pacing the league, as well as his 175 ribs, still the fourth highest total of all time. And he absolutely loved hitting at Fenway Park, as 35 of his 50 dongs were hit in his home park. His RBI total stands as the Red Sox benchmark in that category. And the home run total stood as the team record until David Ortiz surpassed the mark in 2006. After the season was finished, the Beast beat out Hank Greenberg in the voting to take home his third AL MVP award. The 1939 season saw the rise of another magnificent star in our baseball universe when a raw rookie, a slender, splendid splinter of a man in relation to the bulk and the wallop that the beast carried around the locker room. His name was Theodore Samuel Williams, but the boys all called him Teddy. From day one, Fox fell in love with Teddy Ballgame. When Williams walked through that locker room door and he yelled out, Wait till Fox sees me hit. And even though Teddy was brash and confident, he was always humbled when learning about his craft. And he looked up to Double X as a mentor, and in some cases, as a father figure of sorts. The two would develop a friendship that would last until the Beast died on that fateful night in June 1967 while dining with his brother. And even after Fox's death, Teddy remained a close confidant of his family until his own death in 2002. Oh, and by the way, I got a Teddy Ballgame pod that archives too. These vines are attaching to one another slowly and surely after 150 plus years of baseball history and coverage here at BKP. For years after Double X had left Boston, Teddy would sit the dugout and opine to his younger teammates about the days when Jimmy Fox roamed Fenway. He would point out spots on the field that the Beast had touched with his tape measure shots in the story park. Together, the two formed a dynamic left-right meeting combo in the Red Sox lineup that kept him in contention for the league pennant in 1939. The Beast does what the Beast does. He obliterates baseballs and destroys pitching careers. His 360 average was second in the AL. He led the junior circuit with 35 big flies. His tremendous season was the bookend of arguably the most dominant run of any player during the 1930s decade. From 1930 to 1939, Jimmy Fox, the beast, smashed 415 home runs and drove in 1,403 runs. During his Boston career, Fox moved into a hotel and would be separated from his family for long periods of time. And it was during this time that the Beast began showing signs of having a drinking problem. He had always been a guy who occasionally drank during his early years in the league, but he was never regarded as a heavy drinker back then. And after that beating that he suffered that I mentioned earlier, he had real bad sinus issues, and that came with long stretches of acute pain, a pain that would be dulled by imbibing alcohol. So because of this, he began to do the scotch hard. He was never a violent or aggressively belligerent drunk. And to the contrary, in fact, he, he was more the gentle peacemaker drunk. He was a guy mediating 
arguments at the card table. He was the guy making sure rookie Dominic DiMaggio got the bet on time. And some have suggested that Fox's career was shortened by the drinking. Still others claim it was merely a diminishing batting eye caused by his beating, as well as those related sinus issues. Fox remains top shelf liquor in 1940 and 1941, driving in 100 runs in both campaigns and launching a total of 55 home runs. By 1941, Fox's stars eclipsed by Ted Williams as the beast is showing signs of decline, and by now, he suffers daily from sinus infections. He, he begins to wear glasses off the field to combat the dimish, diminishing eyesight. Also, he's growing more critical of player coach Joe Cronin. Even though he basically got along with everyone, he never had the same respect for Cronin as he did for Connie Mack back in Philly. It was no secret that Jimmy's days in Boston were coming to an end. Off the field, his 14-year marriage to Helen is imploding. Many a night, Fox could be seen on the clubhouse phone being harassed and degraded over money issues. All the while, Helen's carrying on in an extramarital affair. The acrimonious divorce led to a long estrangement from his two young sons, Jimmy Jr. and W. Kenneth. The boys were shipped off to military school and seldom if ever spoke to their father. W. Kenneth did reunite with his father at his stepmother's funeral in 1966, just months before Jimmy would die. And Jimmy never saw Junior again. His firstborn son virtually disappeared into the 1950s after serving in the Korean War. And for many years, most family members in the Fox clan assumed that he had died. But in 2002, he resurfaced in the Philadelphia area and re- reunited with his brothers and family shortly before his death in 2006. As the 1942 season gets underway, Cronin tells Fox he's going to have to earn his spot at first base over Tony Lupian. Despite breaking his toe in spring training, Fox out hits the kid. He started the season as the starting first baseman. A freak batting injury resulted in a broken rib. And on June 1st, the Sox placed Jimmy Fox on waivers. And he was sold to the Cubs for $10,000. The Red Sox fans... They had loved Fox, and it truly was a moment of regret and sadness by the faithful. But the Beast days as a productive hitter were over. He hit a minuscule 205 for the Cubs, and at the end of the season, he announced his retirement. He stayed retired through the 1934 season, married Dorothy Yard. The two shared a warm, loving marriage through thick and thin until her death in 1966. He made up for the mistakes he made with his own kids by becoming a true father to Dorothy's children, John and Nancy. He did volunteer for the Army, but was denied due to his sinus infections. He returned to serve as a player coach for the Cubs for a handful of games and also became an intern coach for the Portsmouth baseball team in the Class B Piedmont League. The swan song, the Fox's baseball career, happens in 1945 when he returns to where it all started, Philly. But this time as a member of the Phillies, who are looking to fill roster spots in the tight wartime era. He makes the team out of spring training and serves in a pinch hitter role. 
He would hit the last seven dogs of his career in Philly. But really, the most remarkable, unique accomplishment while playing with the Phillies had nothing to do with hitting. When Fox signed with the uh, Filthy, he let them know he was willing to do anything to help the team in whatever way he could. Jimmy Fox, the kid who wanted to pitch when he first signed with the A's, finally got his chance. And he was something of a natural. He hurls 23 innings in his last year in the majors. He finishes with a 1-0 record and a 1.59 ERA. On August 19th, in the second game of the doubleheader, he throws five innings of no-hit ball at the Pirates in an emergency start. His last MLB at-bat came against the Dodgers on September 23rd, 1945. Fox was glad to end the career on his terms with his return to Philly. He was now happily remarried with a new son, also named Jimmy Jr., but the divorce to Helen had left him in financial ruin. He lost thousands of dollars in investments, including a golf course that closed in Florida because of World War II restrictions. For the rest of his life, he struggled mightily at finding a job outside of baseball. And if you think about it, his meteoric rise to stardom as a teenager, it did not give him a lot of tools or preparation to do so. He bounced around a couple times in the radio and the Red Sox radio booth. Uh, the, the, the New Englanders didn't like his Maryland accent. Yeah, I mean, I get it. It's bad. I'm glad you guys stick with me through it. He spent brief periods as a minor league manager and coach in 1947 and 1949. He did make it back to the game in 1952 in a most peculiar manner. By coaching the Fort Wayne Daisies, a team in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. By most family accounts, his time with the Daisies was an enjoyable experience. His daughter Nancy served as a team Batgirl. The attendance approved, and his team made the playoffs. In fact, the Tom Hanks role in a league of their own as coach of that team, uh, Coach Jimmy Duggan, as Based loosely on Jimmy Fox. Although, the women who played for Double X remember him as a true gentleman in every way. Unfortunately, Fox did not return to 53, with his only complaint being the long bus rides. Fox continued to drift through life after his career was over. He was a car salesman, a cool truck driver, a coal truck driver. He tried ambitious ventures like public service works with inner city kids that failed to launch. Spent two years as a baseball manager for the University of Miami baseball team. Hitting instructor for the Miami Marlins minor league team in 56 and 57. By 1958, Jimmy Fox is bankrupt and he's hitting the booze hard. The alcohol use may have truly stemmed from his painful sinus issues and worsened by his Good time lifestyle, but at this point, his daughter Nancy says his drinking problems were really manifested by the loss of his baseball career. In May of 66, he suffers the cruelest of blows when Dorothy dies of asphyxia. Throughout the good and bad, Dorothy was his ride or die. They had a great, healthy marriage, and when she died, Fox's depression and life begins to spiral out of control. He returned home to Maryland one last time in August of 1966 
to surprise fan Gil Dunn, who had written him concerning a memorabilia display he wanted to build for his drugstore near Sutlersville, Maryland. The aging slugger showed up unannounced with his little brother Sam and Tell, and he gave Gil a slew of uniforms, equipments, and hats to display. Less than a year later, at the age of 59, he was dead and buried next to Dorothy and Miami's Flagler Memorial Park. In the years since Jimmy's death, a reappreciation of his achievements has elevated his status. He has been honored by the Oakland A's and inducted into the Boston Red Sox Hall of Fame. Each of those times with Nancy on hand to accept the honor for him, his visage was put on a U.S. post stamp in 2000. And in 2006, with Nancy in attendance, she watches Big Poppy break his 68-year-old team record for single-season home runs. But the greatest tribute to this man, the myth, the legend, is the monument erected in his hometown of Sullivansville, Maryland. And that was in celebration of his 80th birthday in 1997. A bronze statue of the icon was erected in the center of town. The Maryland strong boy had finally come home for good. And freaks, I think that's where I'm going to do a backwoods rap on this blunt. As someone who only knows this great slugger on the surface, it's been an absolute honor to lay his story out to you. Many stories in our collection have happy endings, but this one, for me, does not. I, I hate hearing about players who leave the game, the cheers, the adulations, and they wind up getting lost in the shuffle. Nowadays, the players have great insurance coverage, pensions. They even have outreach programs for addicts and alcoholics. And former players still go broke nowadays, but the salaries have skyrocketed, and there is a better retirement infrastructure to turn to, but look, the guy is a forgotten legend in many ways, and I'm proud to fold his story up nicely and add it to our expanding catalog. Jimmy Fox, the beast. Thank you so much for sitting in and listening to his bio, and I promise he had seam heads. I'll try to be better next week. Now, before I hit the bricks, let's take. One final look at those oh so lovely Jimmy Fox legendary stats. Alright, let's pull up his file here. James Emery Fox, the beast. 20-year Major League Baseball career with the Philadelphia A's, Boston Red Sox, Chicago Cubs and the Phillies, first baseman, third baseman, and catcher. Born October 22nd, 1907 in Sutlersville, Maryland. So, we just celebrated his 116th birthday just a few days ago before this drop. Died July 21st, 1967 at the age of 59. At the age of 17, he makes the Major League Baseball versus, uh, he makes his debut versus the Washington Senators. He goes one for one, becoming the 6,193rd player in the history of on this country to join the Major League Baseball fraternity. He played in 2,143 games, 9,179 plate appearances. His 1,751 runs scored is the 23rd most in the history of the game. 
2,543 career hits, 458 doubles, the 102nd most ever, 125 triples, 534 home runs. When he retired, he was second only to Rube, and now he sits at 19th on the all-time list. 1,922 RBIs, which is the 10th most in the game's history. He has, has one of, it's gotta be one of the greatest slash lines in the history of baseball. Check this out. His 325 BA is the 45th best of all time. 428 OBP, 12th best ever. 609 slugging, 7th best ever. And his 1.038 career OPS is number 6. 93 more, 41. 41st highest ever. He led the AL three times in total bases, and his career number of 4,956 ranks him 23rd best in the game's existence. I mean, these numbers are fucking flat out sick. He is a on. He was on base a total of 4,111 times in his career. Only 42 players in the history of the game got on base more. I could go on and on. Nine-time All-Star, three-time AL MVP in 1932, 33, and 38 with Boston. 1938 Triple Crown winner, two-time AL batting champion, and in 1951... After his eighth time on the ballot, Double X received 79.2% of the vote from the BBWAA to earn induction among the immortals in the National Baseball Hall of Fame at Cooperstown, New York. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seamen of all ages, this is the story of the beast. Double X. Jimmy Fox. And man, I tell you, I haven't read a stat line as mind-bottling as that since I did the Hottest Wagner show, I believe. I mean, wow. What a player. A player I really enjoyed comparing him to was Manny Ramirez, if you want to play along at home. Uh, So we're at the top of the eighth. Christian Walker's just drawing a walk, man on purse, no outs, game seven of the NLCS, the Snakes on top of the Bills, four to two. Time is running short, the Bills are down to their final six outs. I know the show came out late, but, you know, I figured what the hell, Texas is already in, so I might as well just wait and watch the game and do the show. And I'm glad that you were able to. To share this experience with me. I will never charge you C-Med Freaks for the baseball content. No pay to play horse shit. No Patreon or Twitch channels. I'm just going to keep coming through every Tuesday with that pre. Baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Barry Larkin, baby. And I'm ready to get you back to your loved ones at Terrapin Station waiting for your return. <laughs> And as I leave the Jimmy Fox story behind us getting smaller and smaller in the rearview mirror, I turn my attention to our never-say-die baseball hydra, and I chop the head off that beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. Next week, we're going out to the desert, Phoenix, Arizona, 
when we were examining the life of Chase Field, the stadium formerly known as the Bob. So, just for the heat, bring a shovel. I got some business to attend to in the desert. I have to tell that story. And, of course, that's just another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. And before I roll out, I want to give a shout-out to my social media ninjas, Omar Gabi and Derek Muller, holding it down for me on Twitter and TikTok. I know where to find you. Want to email me? You want to email the show? You can go to backwardskpod at gmail.com. Our TikTok and YouTube channels are at backwardskpod. The Twitter handle is at back underscore k underscore podcast. Or you can always find me at the private Facebook group page, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I believe my work here is done. Vinny, Vinny, but see, I came, I saw, I conquered. Parents, if you see the kid sitting on the couch looking bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillebrand said to me in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo last year, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. Chase Field next week, C-Meds. The World Series might be there. Thanks for stopping by. I love you guys. Peace.